if you were to look at one data set in conclusion or just one graph for a layperson, what is the easiest thing to just look at to digest and to see what has actually happened here? The scatter plot that shows the severity of lockdown and impacts of lockdown. It's just like someone took a paintbrush and went, because it's just spots everywhere. There's no pattern. Welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. Today, we're going to have an excellent conversation with Nick Hudson and Peter Castledon, who are experts in economics and in actuarial science, and they're operating out of South Africa, which is pretty heavily locked down. So great to meet you guys. First time online. Great to be with you, Ivor. Yeah, thanks, Ivor. Excellent. And you know what, maybe a very brief bio or uh, what, what you guys generally do and the organization you're involved in that's dealing with pandemic issues uh, from each of you. Um, and we, we're both members of PANDA, which is, uh, stands for Pandemics Data Analysis. It was an impromptu organization set up in response to um, concerned individuals just looking at the situation in South Africa, the emerging lockdown which then was sustained way beyond anybody's expectations, very draconian lockdown. And uh, we formed this group. We have now upwards of 30 members, uh, various specialists in data science, actuarial science, so forth, economics. Um, and we started analyzing the epidemic in South Africa and its impact um, and being activists for the end of lockdown, which we think was an extremely poor policy decision and this, and which is still being sustained 100 days later. And Peter, your particular specialty is part of this group? Um, well, Nick and I found each other because we were both independently asking questions from the data of why on earth is South Africa following the route it's going. And uh, my, back, my background is in, in life insurance. And, and I, was, I was one of the first parts of my job is to figure out what on earth is going to happen to my life insurance business if... Uh, if everyone starts dying, I mean, it's quite an important, um, important question. And then looking at the data, things just didn't add up. And then Nick and, Nick and I didn't know each other before end of April. And then we kind of joined, uh, joined a coalition of the willing and started, um, started producing some interesting work. Yeah, very much so. I've seen some of your presentations and analysis, and we're going to get into that. And I can share some of the graphs and stuff on the screen uh, post-editing. Uh, but maybe you could start off with South Africa is very interesting. And I have a friend there, Donal O'Neill, a filmmaker who got locked down back in March. And it's a very severe lockdown. So maybe share the extent of the severity, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, if you go by the Oxford um, severity index, um, it's possibly the most severe in the world. Um, and it, it has gone, it's lighter than it was at the beginning, but the initial lockdown was incredibly tight. You can see that if you look at the mobility statistics on app on Google, um, there was just a, a massive drop off. Um, and accompanied by the most bizarre set of regulations you have ever seen. I mean, we had, <laughs> we had bans on the sale of closed toe shoes. <laughs> you could have a full shoe, but not a closed, uh, not an open toe shoe. Sorry. You could buy a cold chicken, but not a hot one. Um, we were, there was a ban on cigarettes. You could drink wine, but not transport it and not export it. Even online retail was banned. So it was a very brutal lockdown. Um, and I, I, I don't, I haven't heard anybody, um, speak of one to compare. 
we have been in touch with people in other developing nations. And, you know, that whole setup is just incredibly dangerous. It's, it's something that I think a lot of people in the West don't uh, fully appreciate is that, you know, in, in any developing country, there's a huge mass of people who, who, who live just outside of the reaches of poverty. And when you knock incomes down, as we have done in this country for several months, you push people into poverty very quickly. And the, the effects are, are heartbreaking. Um, so we have, uh, you know, a situation where we have a very small epidemic burden, you know, as, as is the case in most of the world. I mean, this is really primarily a disease of Western, Southern and Northern Europe and uh, then North America. And then sort of there's a, there's a burden in South America. But for the rest of the world, this is a very minor story. And um, we have diseases that will in any given year kill uh, 10 times as many people, just single diseases as coronavirus does, HIV, tuberculosis. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a crazy situation. And it bears many of the hallmarks that, that you guys would be familiar with. We had our own Neil Ferguson doing an even more dramatic model. We were going to have in a much smaller country, 60 million people. We weren't quite going to do the 550,000 deaths but we were apparently going to do 351,000. That was the, uh, the range of deaths that was projected. And that involved potentially a shortage of a million hospital beds. So, you know, same story, completely pseudoscientific epis coming out with these junked out models, scaring the hell out of everybody and government included, a very draconian lockdown. And then this trap, how do you come out of it? And all the rationalization of, you know, well, that's because of the lockdown that we, you know, we aren't at 351,000 deaths. And I mean, the most interesting feature of our work that almost happened by accident was, you know, we, we, was, we were trying to figure out why there are these big differences from one country to the next. What are the factors driving that? Why, why does Africa have such a light disease burden? Why does Southeast Asia have such a light disease burden? And we decided to test the inter-country differences, the residuals in our model against lockdown stringency. And we found zero cor correlation. It, we were expecting to see something, but there was absolutely nothing. So it would, it would appear that as an MPI, um, consistent with Professor Levitt's analysis of those second derivative Gompertz functions, that lockdown is, is not at all beneficial when it comes to coronavirus. Yeah, and Peter, before I comment on that, maybe Peter, your thoughts on that, the whole modeling area and its accuracy, shall we say? I don't think we could, as we could say with, with a, a huge amount of confidence that lockdown would make no positive difference. So let's concede the point that it, it could potentially um, help save some lives back then when we were first doing the analysis. The challenge that we saw was that nobody in South Africa, and it looks like it was pretty much a global problem, no one was making the trade-off calculation. They're, they're, every policy has a cost. Um, and sometimes you have to make the decision that has a, has a cost on one side and the positives need to outweigh it. And we, we looked at a, at a country like South Africa where, like Nick said, we have, we have millions of people earning on, by Western scales um, very little money, but enough to keep poverty at bay. But we also live in a situation where we have about 600 deaths a day from communicable diseases. Uh, in any day of, of recent years, HIV and TB and 
Um, and oh, all yeah. of that stuff are, are diseases we already deal with significantly. And what lands up happening with a lockdown situation, even if it works, is you crowd out resources from real problems that we have. And when the media focus intently on a single problem and the government seems to try or appear to be optimizing against a single outcome um, without consideration for the second order impacts, which are actually quite predictable, uh, you land up with what we think is a pretty tragic outcome for a country like South Africa. Yeah, for sure. And I'll share your correlation chart there um, on the screen. But also, there are so many analyses now looking at lockdown. Uh, and I think you make a great point that the absence of correlation uh, or linkage between lockdown severity and outcome is quite stunning. Because I would have expected some correlation and I still would have questioned the value uh, and your, your very point, Peter and Nick, the cost benefit, you'd still question in terms of qualities or quality adjusted life years that are saved versus the impacts, which are enormous. But the lack of correlation is stunning. Uh, someone did an analysis of the US states and the eight, eight that there were not locked down had a significantly lower mortality rate than the top 12 that were. Um, and it's the same across countries. It's the same nearly in any data state you look at. But the funny thing is that the lockdown proponents, which is basically nearly everyone, they never respond with data saying otherwise. They just say lockdown works, which is like religion. It's like, to me, it's ideology because it's not borne out by the data. No, it's, it's, it's very much like ideology. I mean, it, it, it's the one spectacular interaction we had we have a strange rule where, you know, whereas Neil Ferguson was good enough to share his model with the world so that everybody could see how crazy it was, our modelers uh, are keeping their models under lock and key and have signed non-disclosure agreements with government. So we've managed to reverse engineer them and work out what assumptions were going wrong, what crazy assumptions were being made, what data was being ignored. Uh, we've written under the Public Access to Information Act letters to all of the modeling, um, the members of the modeling consortia, and we're pressing to get those modeling assumptions exposed. But the very interesting thing in the reaction was when we asked, why didn't you use the Diamond Princess data in the first iteration of the model? The answer came back, well, it hadn't been published yet, hadn't been peer reviewed, okay? Which was astonishing because you know, it's an, it's an epidemic, first of all. You'd think you'd waive that kind of rather, rather marginal requirement. But secondly, they were entirely happy to assume significant benefit from lockdown in the models. And obviously, there's no evidence for that, first of all, because now we know that there is no benefit. With certainty, we know that. And secondly, we know there's no research, right? So the models assumed massive impacts, huge uh, movements in R0 and... Um, you know, so, so what, and what they're doing, of course, since then is, well, there would have been, you know, that many deaths. Of course, there would have been if it hadn't been for lockdown, you know. It's the old uh, Houdini trick. So it's beyond, it's beyond religion, you know. Mm. Religions are tried and tested over years and, you know, end up with some, at least some sets of memes that are sound and guides to live life by, you, you know, if you take a generous view. But I, these guys yeah, are I think in, it... in the domain of magic. Yeah, I think it's like religion, but where the religion is staging miracles, you know, to fool the people. 
because that's what's happening now, revisionism, and the Imperial College recent report came out and said X amount of lives were saved by lockdown and actually claimed it. Two German professors of epidemiology immediately did a paper explaining how it was completely wrong, the assumptions were incorrect, and the most fascinating thing was Sweden, which we know did not have a lockdown, uh, they only limited crowds to 50 people, which is very soft. Uh, and Sweden, we know now, has gone through its curve and is coming out and are coming flat out asymptotically to nothing. They've been through it. There's community immunity clearly developed. But this Imperial College retrospective paper, it acknowledged that Sweden had followed the same curve as the UK and even had better results. But it said for the lockdown countries, it was the lockdown that gave the magic. And then you might ask, but what could they possibly say for Sweden? And they essentially said, well, and in Sweden's case, limiting crowds to 50, etc., did the magic. I, I mean, you, it, this is published. It, how, how do they explain <laughs> Japan and uh, Belarus? I don't think they even got into that. <laughs> no, I think, I think what, what I've noticed is that you, you simply are not allowed to question that lockdown was correct. Okay, so then you have to go and look for the data to support that. So you can see that in the US now that's, oh, we've got the second wave. I mean, I'm just, in, I get infuriated by using cases as a, as, a point, as a data point to draw any type of conclusion. It really doesn't tell you anything. Um, but no, geez, all the people who are anti-states that have opened, look at all the cases. Like, where are the deaths? Oh, no, but the deaths, well, they're coming. Two weeks, two weeks, obviously, two weeks. Um, and then if the deaths don't come, what's next? No, the long-term health impact. So you simply, you never debate, can, is the lockdown right? It's always, we'll find another data point to prove it was right because we simply will not concede. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is the astonishing thing for me. There's such a breach of the methodology of science here. You know, it, if you make a prediction and say, listen, Germany shouldn't go out of lockdown because when it does, you know, you're going to have this wall of death hit you. Okay. And Germany comes out of lockdown and there's no wall of death. You have to change your hypothesis. You have to revise your hypothesis, right? It's simple. You've, you've got an explanation for how the world works. It turns out it doesn't work that way. You change your hypothesis, but these guys just don't do it. And it's amazing because what, where the scales have really fallen off of my eyes, is people who I actually, who I actually had a deal, good deal of respect for. I mean, I'll call out one who's one of the centrist, centralist kind of guys um, in, in the epi world is um, and, and Nicholas Christakis. Um, you know, he, he came out saying these protests that we're having, we're going to have a wall of death because of all this lockdown breaching going on around us, you know. And I wrote to him and I said, okay, that's fine. But just as long as you tell me which part of your hypothesis you're going to change when that wall of death doesn't happen in two weeks. And two weeks later, wrote again, you know, saying, look, there've been no deaths. What part of your hypothesis haven't you changed? Zilch, nothing, you know, no answer. Not gonna, no. not gonna, we're not going to correspond about that kind of thing. So it's yeah. just, it, it beggars belief. Uh, I mean, and, and it's not just one hypothesis that has failed. We wrote a whole, a whole article in one of our leading uh, news media uh, establishments, just spelling out, you know, all of the hypotheses that were entailed in these models, implied by them or part of their assumption set, spelling each one out in detail and pointing out how that one was failing, how each one was failing. And just open invitation, guys, come and explain to us 
what your revised hypothesis is now. Not a word. Not a response. No. Not a word. It, it, yeah, the paradigm is being protected against all scientific reasoning and logic, mathematics. Every single branch of science can essentially disprove that lockdown has a significant effect in these circumstances we've observed, and none of it will be discussed. So that is when you're in medieval type scenario. And to some examples, I have given so many examples of this, and like you say, I cannot get replies uh, from people. So Slovenia dropped its lockdown. I think they had a constitutional challenge or could have been Czech Republic. But either way, both those guys dropped in like towards end of April. Now, this is way back. And they had the same or more infections in the population when they dropped the lockdown. So to your point, of course, within weeks, they would be in a mess. Uh, they even had people drinking in bars. One guy said, I'm drinking here with around 60 people outside a bar. And the trains in Slovenia are full again, and he's not even seeing many masks. So I'm there watching, and Slovenia's curve kept going without a blip in terms of cases and deaths, effectively, and Czech Republic. And there's so many more, uh, but no one will answer that data, hard, cold data. I mean, Denmark... Yeah. I mean, from my point of view, <clears throat> it would be so refreshing for, for people to come out and say, at the time we believed lockdown was necessary. We had the World Health Organization telling us, and that's a different topic on its own. Um, we thought case fatality rates were north of 3%. Uh, so we didn't know, and we thought they would work. Fast forward a few months, we can say, guys, okay, well, it turns out they didn't work that well, um, but we at least did it in good faith. The problem is revising this whole thing that lockdowns absolutely worked means what is gonna happen next time? Because I've already seen a news article today that the new strain of COVID is now 10 times more infectious. Uh, I guess we're going to lock down again because no one refuses to learn that it didn't work. It's, an, it's, a, it's a stupid strategy, actually. So the, the, the fact that the world seems to be at a point where we refuse to learn in the face of data for whatever reason, I don't mind. I mean, I think the panda guys, we will be wrong on 20% of the stuff we say. And when we do, we'll admit it because we, that's how we get better. And I've, I mean, I've seen Lev, Levitt, Levitt is, um, Levitt's conceded a few points where he got a couple of things wrong in early days. That, that's how you improve. But I, I'm yet to see the pro-lockdown fanatics vaguely concede a point that, um, that they may have called it wrong. And there's no shame in that. That's exactly how the world gets better. Ivor, there's, there's a story we got to tell you here about uh, in, in relation to this. It'll, it'll blow you away. So our first paper as Peter described, was about measuring the mortality, the loss of life consequences of lockdown. And just putting that out into the, into the general public so that you know, there could be a debate around there being a trade-off, as you said, okay? And that paper predicted that there would be you know, a lot of mortality problems and health problems flowing from a, a, a severe lockdown. Of course, at that stage, we weren't anticipating a 100-day lockdown. We were thinking of three, three weeks, you know? Um, but, yeah, that was, so that was the first paper. We then started looking more closely at the epidemic and we realized that the models were you know, way out and started making predictions using Professor Levitt's technique of the Gompertz curve, okay? And at the same day, day that the, our uh, NICD, our National, what is that? National Institute of Communicable Diseases, whatever. Um, as, as on the same day that they, um, released their model, we released ours for the Western Cape, one of our provinces. 
within a week, their model was out. Okay, they were, it was tracking below their confidence intervals and heading to blow them, clean out the water within a couple of weeks. Okay, and our model, which we had very tight confidence intervals compared to theirs, was spot on. Okay, we were right in the middle. It's a very good technique that Professor Levitt has developed. And we, we, were, we listened eagerly to a presentation by the, the provincial authority. We got up and said, well, look, uh, it's a bit interesting, you know, the model, the, what our projected deaths are not coming out. But, you know, we've observed quite a lot of excess mortality in the country. And we're, we'll attribute that to coronavirus. Filling in oh. the curve with the deaths caused by lockdown. Now, I mean, we, we just, we, we could hardly, we were speechless. I mean, the moral depravity of that kind of move. You know, as a scientist, that your data, your projections are causing people to die, right? You can see the numbers before your eyes and you don't revise your model. You would rather be right, not revise a bad hypothesis than save people's lives. It's astonishing. And, you know, we got quite upset, as you can imagine, because, you know, we've got two predictions, both of which are coming too, and we didn't see this one coming. No, they're going to combine the deaths that we predicted would happen to explain away the deaths that we would predicted wouldn't happen. You know, it's just, it, it's unspeakable. And, and the irony of all of this is if you're a scientist, you should be completely relaxed about getting stuff wrong. Scientists throw out hypotheses all the time. That's how science happens. It doesn't happen by being right. It, it happens by throwing stuff up on the whiteboard, testing the hypotheses and rejecting the ones that don't work and sticking with the ones that do. And when they do, trying to improve them. You know, it's, it's the hypothesis, the Popperian approach to science. These guys take the old 19th century uh, empirical, empiricist approach of trying to, you know, read the data and then be the most authoritarian interpreter of the data, the, the authority-driven science, you know? I think that's the key point, Nick, that for me, what's driven me crazy since April, because I was willing to, you know, go with the lockdown. And because of research I'd done during March and, um, you know, the data I was seeing and the demographics affected and the shapes of curves, I figured, right, this is going to be a, a bad flu type impact. But, you know, social distancing and washing hands, you know, makes sense. But I also was aware from other work in the past, like Hope Simpson, that, you know, by the time you begin to get the rise in the curve, you know, it's getting a bit late to have measures because that is based on months of buildup in the population kind of seasonally triggering. And it can be a bit late to take measures. But by all means, measures might help somewhat because there are during the rise in the curve of these things, uh, there are certain sub uh, groups of people who will actively spread during that period. So, yes, take measures. The lockdown, I said, that makes no sense whatsoever in Ireland in, at the end of March because it was endemic at that stage and we were going up the curve. So locking down was absurd. Uh, but it was afterwards in April where I realized what you just said, that increasingly all scientific method and scientific thinking is increasingly being shelved, literally by the day. And that's really what frightened me because I've never seen that in my lifetime. I've seen a lot of bad hypotheses like the cholesterol and fat and all that stuff. And they get defended because there's an industry behind them. And I understand that. And there's a lot of back and forth arguing. 
But this was a global scale unscientific thinking had taken root and it hasn't got better since then. I mean, like Peter, you said, what happens next time that a bad flu equivalent significant virus comes along? What, what are we going to do? Is that the end of, of, of our society now? That from now on, every time there's a very bad flu or something, everything just falls apart again until the whole world's in chaos? I, I mean, what is the plan? What's the game plan? It's a, it's, a, it's a good question, but I have a feeling it's going to be a bad plan. I think that's the only, if I read the science, there's a pretty good correlation between uh, people making decisions and bad planning. So it's, uh, I don't know, part of, part of the work we're going to have to do, and I, I, I look to you and I'm, I'm impressed, I'm really grateful for people like you doing what you do day in and day out, um, is that we, we, have to, we have to change the narrative that certain things we have to learn lessons from, otherwise we're going to do this again. And we're going to live in a world where for some reason people don't die ever that that seems to be the 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 baseline hypothesis is people don't die so when there's one death we have to uh, destroy everything um we need to be i don't know we need to get some sensible heads going and i, I don't know i I'm, I'm more despondent than any ever actually about this whole thing yeah i'm the opposite i'm optimistic but that's great peter and i have some very interesting discussions <laughs> but I mean, before it, it, I would very much like to cover some of the non-science craziness because it's not only in the STEM fields that the, this kind of madness is um, emerging and provoking, you know, these these crazy reactions. But there was another. There's another area here which is, has completely staggered me from the very beginning, and it took me a while to, to took all of us a while to fully appreciate how deep it went, and it's around this question of susceptibility. If you speak to any doctor, just a general family practitioner, they know that some people are susceptible to diseases and some are not. And there's a spectrum and a continuum. And for any particular person at the beginning of the year, they might be in great shape. And a little later in the year, they're stressed out and they're susceptible. And, you know, maybe, they're, maybe they've got a, a comorbidity or something. You know, there are all sorts of reasons why there's a variation in susceptibility across a population. And what has staggered me is this this allegation that we get when we say, look, you know, some people are, are just going to bounce this disease off them. It's going to, you know, shake it off them like a drop of rain. You know, that's, that's how, that's what happens with diseases. You know, that might be 80% of your population. As far as the serology tests are concerned, it looks like about that because only 14% of people have antibodies. And we know science tells us how, how, that, how that happens. There's a, an immune system which has layers. It has an innate immune system and you have a humoral immune system and the innate immune system is T cells and that's invoked first. And if, if that's very successful, your, your, you know, your viral particles don't make it to the B cells and you've got no antibody response. Okay, and I'm not a doctor, so I may have gotten that slightly wrong, but I mean, the existence of these things is known by science, okay? This is not anything new. All right. So you say, look, okay, so that's how the science works, guys. T cells, B cells. And look, in New York, in Sweden, in India, the serology, come, the serology tests come back after the disease is, is almost gone. It's in decline. You know, there's, an, <laughs> there's no talk of the thing. You know, so we, we're not racing up to some mythical 60 or 70% herd immunity level. Okay. And you say to them, look, so that's how the science works. This is how the immune system works. And it appears that you know, we hit saturation at 14% population serology. 
Um, so no, you know, we, we uh, herd immunity at 60 or 70 is just a flatly unscientific idea. It's not even, it's not even close to being defensible. It's, it's silly. It's a kind of textbook answer for somebody who's being taught in first year university to build an, an SIR model or something like that. But as a scientist, as an epidemiologist, as a virologist, as a, a doctor, as any kind of scientist, why on earth would you be asking this question of why you don't understand why Sweden's not at 60 or 70% serology positive? It's simply because some people are resistant to the disease. And that happens all the time. We, we walk around in a cloud of viruses and, and bacteria, especially in, in third world countries. And um, they bounce us off us all the time. You know, they're viruses to which arbitrarily small portions of the population are susceptible or viruses that no people are susceptible to, you know, we've co-evolved with these things for <laughs> since the days of, you know, archaea and eukaryotes being formed. I mean, these things are ancient and, and our immune systems are co-evolved with them. And they, there's an ongoing war between the two. Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. And if you're strong, you win. If you're weak, you don't. That's kind of how the world works. And, you know, our, our strengths and weaknesses for every single human being is a fluctuation. It, it goes down progressively with age, but you know, there are all sorts of things that drive it down. Funny enough, like poverty, like, like lockdowns, like keeping people out of the sunlight. Um, this seems to be a scandalous thing to say. The guys want to call us pseudoscientists for saying this. And it's just, you know, how, why? And, and, and on that, yeah, that is one of the many, many, scientific absurdities with this thing uh, there's recently and i've been on this for for quite some time now i interviewed a guy about those layers of the immune system he went through them all with a pie chart and showed how most layers of defense may never leave antibodies and there's published papers coming out now talking about maybe 10 to 20 percent uh, it might only be 10% for de facto herd immunity, a 10% serology in a population that has gone through its curve and come down and it's fading is the de facto herd immunity as measured by antibodies. But there's the other 60-70% who have not produced antibodies. So there's a professor in Bern, Switzerland, who's retired and he's gone on the record, I'm trying to contact him for an interview, professor of immunology, runs companies creating vaccines and immunotherapies, top guy, really top guy. And he is just disbelieving at the point you made there, because he said the immunologists know this, um, but no one is speaking up. And he said, I've begun to kind of prod them and say, you're an immunity denier. And you're an immunologist and you're an immunity denier. So they're effectively deniers of immune function. And you've got to ask the question, why? And I think it's back to the narrative. It's very damaging to the lockdown narrative, to the whole narrative, if what you just said and, and my interviewees go through. If that's true, then this whole thing is like, well, guys, you know, we tried the lockdown to Peter's point. OK, the mathematics, the data and the analysis says it didn't really do much at all mea culpa let's move on we're also seeing that herd immunity especially with examples like sweden and elsewhere where they've come down the bottom of the curve and we know about all the science and we've dusted it off and taken it out and went oops yeah you know susceptibility is a huge factor uh, so let's fix that now and say look there is a lot of herd immunity and then we can tell people look we did the right thing we we're extremely careful uh, but now it turns out it's a much better story than we thought so let's still be careful, hygiene, hands, you know, 
surfaces uh, and let's keep keep this tail coming down and get back towards normal because of all the massive cost that what we have done is creating but that's that narr that won't happen because the narrative is set it's set it's, the thing that surprised me so much <clears throat> uh, over the reason i mean so so there's no denying that things have gone better for the world than what the early models and uh, doomsday scenarios were saying and fair enough surely that is reason to be to celebrate or it's it's good news <laughs> surely that's good news it's great news that most children are going to be 100% fine i mean the vast majority there's I mean, kids, it's great news your kids are fine. Um, but when we say that, we get oh, these armchair, I mean, my favorite is armchair epidemiologists, which I take as a compliment because real ones are embarrassing. Um, but, but there's enormous amounts of good news out there. But for some reason, people are choosing to be scared. Um, I mean, and very, very scared. It, it's it's unbelievable. They look for reasons to be scared, and then the experts are backing up their um, their hunch. And then we create these things where we pretend as human beings that we can control things like this. Um, I don't. I'm not convinced we can. We can especially centrally control natural phenomenon like this. So I don't know. Do people a like being scared, and b then give themselves uh, I don't know a placebo effect of believing that what they are doing is making a meaningful difference. Um, and then when there's no real difference, they think that they are, I don't know, many gods. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, there's something weird yeah. going on here with the human psyche, I think. Yeah, there is. And I, I was saying back in March, believe it or not, and not I told you so, but I was saying, look, the problem here is everyone gets, is getting in a panic. Well, A, because all the experts are telling us it's going to be Armageddon. But the other thing is that humans have an inbuilt fear of contagion. I remember looking up articles at the time. So it's like spiders and things, you know, things that were dangerous in the past. So there's a huge fear of contagion. And then B, there's a huge lack of intuitive understanding around virology, epidemiology, lag times, the mathematics of this. So you've got this innate human fear of contagion combined with an absolute lack of being able to apply common sense because this stuff is too aloof. So what do all the humans do? The poor, I was going to say idiots, so that's very harsh. What do they do? They turn to their leaders and experts and they invest in them everything. And we've just talked through what the leaders and experts did, right? They took a massive mirror and they reflected the people's fear right back into their faces. And that is basically a, a synergistic, you know, self-fulfilling, extrapolating fear machine. Uh, and then we've seen what that does. And they're maintaining it. They're feeding in media about, oh, no herd immunity. Yesterday came out in Spain, only 5% serology. There's no herd immunity. We're all going to die. Uh, every day the media is coming out with terror stories into that system. Immunity doesn't last. The immunity doesn't last. Oh my goodness. Worst news it, ever. <laughs> it, it, it's incredible. Uh, the immunity doesn't last. There was the reinfection. So just for the listener, the actual science, Korea came out originally and they had found viral particles in people who'd previously had an infection and it was all over the world's media. Oh my God, you can be reinfected. 
Then Korea came out around six weeks later and said, mea culpa, in fairness to them, South Korea, we made a mistake. The viral particles actually have a three-month half-life and the cells that are uh, shedding them, uh, they're dead virus particles. Our PCR is picking them up. There's a three-month half-life. Everything we said was wrong. Everything was dead viral particles and previously infected. And that media, it barely got covered. I saw it. No one else saw it. The other thing is, I, I, I mean, this fear thing is there's, it's, it, there's a horrible thing happening here because what lands up happening is that there are genuinely people who should take, who should be concerned with a virus like this. We have enough data. We, we know exactly who are at the high risk. And obviously there will be some people outside of that at the fringes who are, who are unlucky enough to have a bad outcome, just like with any other virus, by the way. But when we scare the living daylights out of every single individual, you land up with suboptimal decision-making by those individuals. So if I know, if I, I mean, I've, I've got examples. I've got actually a family friend that passed away from this. And, and it, it's tragic, but, but it was very clear that person was a high-risk individual. I mean, we, we could have told um, them that. But when everyone is scared, no one behaves appropriately. So, so then, and also governments start making bad decisions. We saw what a number of the states in the US did by, by putting COVID patients into institutions of high risk individuals. It's, it, and, and still no apology. Fair enough, maybe you made that mistake in, with good intentions, but you have to admit that because then other people won't do it. But we, when we refuse to learn and we scare the living daylights out of everyone, you land up with, I think, more deaths than, than are necessary from a virus like this. This, you know, when we saw Kuoma putting the sick people into the nursing homes, we looked at it and said, "Well, that kind of looks like the opposite of what you want to do." Oh, wait a second, maybe that's a good policy for South Africa. And we took this idea to several people in government and various places, various you know, uh, discussion groups and so on. Man, we got shouted down so quickly, you know, because the idea was simply depopulate the nursing homes. If you get a sick person, send it to a young family because, you know, send that person to a young family because the young family is not at risk, you know, get, get people out of the nursing homes. It'll save lives. Okay. If they're sick people there, we got screamed at because no, you're going to kill all the children and the young people. People are so scared, you know, and so the fear prevents the one part of sensible policy that you could actually do to make a really big difference when it comes to NPIs, you know, the fear is actually obstructive. So the whole thesis that these EPIs have, which is that, oh, these dumb idiots who, we, who don't understand anything about viruses and disease, we've got to scare them. Otherwise, the Muppets won't do anything. Okay. So let's go and scare them. And then we scare, scare, scare. And we'll get the media involved. And the media loves a scare story. And it's CNN and the New York Times and the Guardian. Okay. And we'll bring them all. And we scare. But then you can't do anything. You can't solve any problems because people are paralyzed by fear. We, had, we have actually several examples of this. I don't want to bore everybody. But I mean, the, the, where the sensible thing to do is no longer within the Overton window. Because the Overton window is about this big now, you know. Um, and I, I, I mean, for me, this is the most fascinating thing because I'm not sure that this level of fear would have been possible 30 years ago. Certainly, would have been possible. Wouldn't have been possible in my grandparents' era. So, what has happened? Why, why do we have people who are so scareable? Number one, and yeah, what so is, easy. Yeah. What What is the What is the role here of of media? And and we. In our discussions, we refer to this, the salience problem. You know, there's, 
20 years ago, that scene in Bergamo in Northern Italy, it would have just passed by unnoticed, you know. But with social media and a camera around every corner now, these things become massively salient. And I think it's not just a case of people being scared or having uh, discussed or what is the problem you, you, you refer to there, uh, a contagion fear. There's also a problem with an inability to assess risk intuitively. So the interpretation of any one particularly horrible event that's promoted on a big enough platform is, is way out of line with the actual risk. And we talk about that as the salience problem. We don't really fully understand it, but there, there's a problem of salience that takes that contagion problem, contagion fear that you were talking about, and another societal problem, which is we've made a bunch of scaredy cats out of everybody somehow in our university systems and our high schools or whatever. We've bred a generation of absolute little ninnies, you know. Um, what, it's the combination of those things that has driven this unbelievable fear reaction. And it's off the charts in, in, all over the world. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's way worse in terms of viral spreading than, than the, the virus itself and its impact. And, you know, I read about this many years ago, and I remember telling the story many times. This is before internet contagion of fear. Uh, a psychiatrist wrote about this. The humans have a fundamental problem with, with intuitively assessing risk because we developed over a million years or hundreds of thousands of years in small communities, and we did not really get to see extremely rare events. And that's where superstition comes from and fear. Because when you see an extremely rare event, you know, it's, it's, it's very unlikely to happen. And when you do, you attribute it to a god or to something like, you know, a moon eclipse. You know, we know humans do this. It's built into us. But now in the modern age, you get to see things happening that are rare and, and not going to apply to you. But you see them on the news screen. It might be from Italy or it might be from Germany. So now suddenly humans are seeing the outcome of millions of, of very rare events. And, and we're not wired to be able to handle it. We were wired to see events in our local community and our local herds. Do you know what I mean? The modern media is feeding stuff that you normally would never see. And, and there's no intuitive ability to think of what that risk means. We're not really wired for it. So we're a crazy situation. Just an example on the 68 flu, way worse than this. 57, way worse. Third page of the newspapers back then. They noted it was a really bad flu and, you know, elderly people and all, and even younger people in cases, you know, were dying. But in 68, Woodstock went ahead, thriving crowds, moon landings, Nixon, and someone had a, a third page of the paper at the bottom cut about a really bad flu. Uh, that's the way it was. And you know what? That, you could argue that that is more normal if we can't do a huge amount about it, bar treat the sick. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think that we, I mean, there's that saying, don't waste a good crisis. So what the world's done is they've created a crisis and then made it a bigger crisis. So they definitely wasted it. But I think early in May, um, Bill Maher had a really interesting guest on his show, um, uh, a public health official who said, interestingly, and this was also in the data, it was, it was, it was very good. He said, the stuff that what we as public health try and promote uh, year in and year out, because we know it's the most effective long-term impact on, on cost of healthcare and, and uh, healthy populations is healthy diets, 
exercise, the, the standard stuff that we know is good for you. Interestingly, this would have been a good crisis to go on message with that stuff. Not that it would help you if you, if you are, have all the comorbidities, um, you're not going to suddenly jog your way out of that, that problem. But it was a good opportunity to actually get back on brand. Yeah. In South Africa, I think we had an incredibly good opportunity to get um, our uh, antiretroviral treatments um, better spread. And we're actually quite good at that. As a country, we, we've done, we've come an incredibly long way. And uh, hats off to the government for, for, um, for getting that to the point where, where HIV is, a, is more like a chronic disease here. Um, but what did we do instead? Have... We scared everyone so no one takes it anymore. I mean, the, the UN AIDS people um, are now saying we could have 50,000 deaths alone from missed, uh, missed HIV. I'm skeptical of models, so that number is probably too high as well because it's likely to be wrong. But the point is, we, we, could, we had an opportunity to get, people, to get people healthier for the diseases we know are killing South Africans. Um, and we not only missed that opportunity, but we made it worse. And it, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's um, unforgivable. Yeah, if you, if you add together the big three communicable diseases in South Africa, you get to approximately 30 times as many deaths a year as we're going to have from coronavirus this year. So they're yeah. much bigger health problems. I mean, even, you know, just diarrheal diseases will kill this year two or three times as many South Africans as, as coronavirus. Okay. Next year, our prediction is they'll, they'll kill 10 times, eight times, something like that because of the effect of poverty. It's very pronounced on diarrheal diseases. You, you can imagine if you just decrease hygiene in home play, homes, quality of diet, um, you, protein intake goes down, fat intake goes down. They're eating carbs all the time. You know, it's, we have the, the staple, the cheap, cheapest food in South Africa is a, is, a, is, a, is a very high fructose carb called, it's made out of cornmeal, you know. And so when your diet slips and we can see it in the numbers, you know, I used to be on the board of a, a, a company that was the largest producer of processed meats in the country. And you could see intra-month, you know, as people get their paychecks, they can afford meat for a few days and then the meat sales drop off. That's the reality of a middle-income country. Okay? That, that's not just South Africa, by the way. You would see that picture in Brazil or in India, any middle-income you go to, country you go to, that's how it works. The people eat their protein at the beginning of the month when they've just got a paycheck. Towards the end of the month, they're just eating straight carbs, fructose. Okay? Now, when your diet deteriorates to that point, you become susceptible to everything. Okay? And you've got diseases cruising around. Tuberculosis is a, we have a massive incidence of tuberculosis. Some, some crazy, what's the proportion? Pete, like, it's, it's, it's insane what proportion of the, the South African population. I don't know, 500,000 a year or something? Something it's crazy. Big. Okay, so I mean, you've got these diseases cruising around and you've now just gone and forced people in the millions in South Africa to be exposed to them for years to come. Not just, you know, because this lockdown is <laughs> permanent institutional damage. It's not something that people go, oh, my savings account is depleted, but don't worry, we'll get the economy back on track. This is very, very serious stuff. And, and, this and the is second order effect is also you've declined healthcare to these people. It's not only that you're going to make the oh, disease yes. bigger, you've actually withheld the healthcare. By, by yeah. banning travel. I mean, how am I supposed to get to my clinic to get my medication? If the army is going to arrest me, I mean, that's another topic we should touch on. It's, yeah. I don't know. This is where my thoughts turn darkest because as much as I'm cross with the epidemiology profession in general, I mean, okay, and that's not fair because we've got our geezers and our Yonadises and uh, Unders and so on. Uh, yeah, but the, the, by, by and large, they've been a bad lot, okay? So as much as I'm cross with them and with government for doing all of these things, 
the people who really burn me, the people who make me lie awake at night angry and fuming is the World Health Organization because they know all of this. They do studies every year on disease burden. They also know by now that this disease is like a mild flu for the rest of the world. Because I know, I know it's fair to say it's a, it's, it's a heavy season of flu in, in the US or in, in Western Europe. But for the rest of the world, you, you know what the average, if you remove those NATO countries as it were from the mix, do you know what the average mortality rate so from, from coronavirus has been? 26 per million. Okay. So it wouldn't even register as like the hundredth cause of death, you know? So you've got these guys at the World Health Organization. They are seeing all of this. They know it. They understand the disease burden problem in a way that public policy uh, setters in various developing nations don't understand. They know all this stuff, but they have this rule for, for leaving lockdown, which basically can never be met by any developing country. We have to have a full and sufficient contact tracing system in place, okay? Now, as you know, infections are a huge multiple of cases and we have 100, how many, what's our case number now, Pete? North of 200,000. 200,000 cases, okay. So it, it's always 20 to 200 times as many infections. So let's just take, let's just say we've got a couple of million cases, uh, infections out there. Contact, Contact tracing left us long ago. We were months ago not being able to, not going to be able to do contact tracing. Okay. okay just bear in mind, our average take case turnaround time is north of seven days. So we have a seven-day problem to try and then catch these people. It, 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 impossible, absolutely impossible to do this requirements of the WHO. And, and so that's and the requirement. Yeah. They're saying you shouldn't come out of lockdown knowing that lockdown kills people and knowing that this disease doesn't. Now, I, I, this, you understand how angry this makes a person in a developing country, a, a sensible person, a rational person. Yeah, I've been stunned with what comes out of that organization. And the tragedy is that the CEO of YouTube said um, anyone who goes against anything that that organization says gets removed from YouTube. So you've, you've just, just described the absurdity <laughs> and that absurdity <laughs> is now yeah, the law. I avoid the topics and I avoid directly getting into it in a sense while still talking about the data. So far, people are not really being censored for just talking about the data. Um, it's when you directly go against, you know, dictums from from a certain organization. So I kind of just skirt that. But it, it's insane. As you described that organization, I mean, last week or two ago, they came out publicly and it was on CNN that asymptomatics, really, there isn't much evidence for spread. And there was an absolute Ferrari and the next day they reversed it. And that was their head scientific officer. And in fairness, was saying the truth. There is very little evidence for asymptomatic, true asymptomatic spread. So it was actually quite truthful. What happened? Well, the next day it had to be reversed. <laughs> A little bit of reality slipped out. We can't have that now, can we? So you, then you, you get into what are the agendas and the motivations of all these people. I'm not talking about the useful idiots, you know, these viral experts who are completely wrong in the ways that we described. Uh, and their colleagues who are correct are kind of shadow banned and censored. But what's driving this? It just makes no sense when you look at the whole thing. I have to pinch myself the last two months every day 
when I see the latest thing coming out as to how this could have happened, even accounting for the fear of contagion, the panic, the concern level, not wanting to be wrong. All those human things can lead to a big, silly fiasco over six weeks. But the persistence of the fiasco. So in Ireland, we have many professors now asking publicly for a full lockdown now, after we've stopped most of the lockdown, for the next two months to crush the curve before the winter. Now, that's way beyond anti-science. That's like science from an alternative universe where everything is wrong. Every logic is wrong. And there are public and there are professors, even professors of immunology, actually stating this at the end of a season, right? At the end of a flu-like season for an illness that's quite severe, but manageable, obviously. We kept the hospital safe. We flattened the curve. It's finishing now for the season. It's clear as day. De facto herd immunity, very prevalent in many regions of Northern Europe and America, not all. And they say we, we need to lock everyone down hard to crush the curve. These are the moments that keep me awake at night. I just cannot fathom this. It's, it's so interesting. And the social causes of this, I mean, we, we touched on the philosophy of science problem and, and I, I gave a stab at, um, you know, the difference between Popperian scientific thought and um, empiricist approaches. And I think that's very important here. There, there's, there's something deep in these people who, who want to chase data, 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 and forget about hypotheses you know that's that's something deeply wrong there that's one but but there's a whole collection of ideas and memes that's giving oxygen to this strange movement that has swept the world and it it i think it's it would be interesting i'd, I'd be very keen to hear what your other guests have been saying in terms of interpreting that uh if, if there have been any interesting attributions um in, in play but i mean it it just the safety culture is one thing. This gradual science denialism, creeping science denialism is, is another, you know, which I think makes people credulous in some way. They just don't have good scientific minds or are reluctant to agree with scientific ideas because it might conflict with their particular brand of woke fervor. Um, what else are your, what else are people saying? Oh, on the on what's driving this essentially? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot of concerns, as there always are in the modern world, on very large corporates, uh, on inappropriate funding and conflicts of interest that would have funded many organizations that are involved in this uh, to the tune of huge, huge amounts of money. Um, we kind of steer clear of the conversation because the accusations of conspiracy theory will come uh, because people don't realize many conspiracies are genuine conspiracies when there's a consistent logical kind of uh, structure around a conspiracy that fits all the facts fits the motivations and fits the logic then it may be a true conspiracy and we know in the past that we've had many false flag operations that with freedom of information, like Vietnam, they were revealed. You know, stuff, there are conspiracies in the world, especially in a corporate-dominated world. Uh, and then conspiracy theories should be reserved for, like, 9-11 was blown up by the CIA. Because that's a conspiracy theory. Because you can say, well, it doesn't really make logical sense. Uh, we know that preparing a building 
uh, for that kind of demolition takes months with everyone out of it and the walls stripped and the steel pillars drilled. You know, we know from the mechanics of what happened, none of none of it makes sense. So that's a true conspiracy theory. It's ridiculous, like flat earth. But, you know, influential bodies lobbying in Washington, more than one lobbyist from pharma for every senator in Washington is a fact. And we know the way the world works. It's not, it's know not a conspiracy if they're telling you that they're doing it, right? <laughs> well, it's if it may... the club, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, no, the if, thing you can also look at some really interesting things that really happen. So, I I don't have a strong opinion either way on the on the BLM uh, protests. Um, actually, I quite like the idea that people can protest, but the fact that what more than a thousand professionals in the US came out and said, "Well, lock down and be super safe and distance," unless you're doing something morally virtuous, um, then it's okay. I, it can't be it that cannot be a good recommendation it's it's either good for the goose it's good for the gander i don't I, so so it's not a conspiracy it's just stupid and then i, I don't as, understand this as soon as the protests are over they go oh wait a second no no lockdown lockdown <laughs> back to the lockdown narrative it's ridiculous yeah. uh, there's an enorm enormous amounts of stupidity i guess i'm just pointing gently towards that I'm a problem solver, like complex problem solving for 30 years, and I always look for root cause. And mostly it's technical root cause, but very often it's psychological root causes. And very often it's kind of corruption based root causes that have driven things. So I kind of did take a little look, but I don't get into it. Uh, well, all the organizations, Imperial College and the one we mentioned there, the big one that ends in O, uh, and many other individuals in immunology who are extraordinarily illogical uh, on the media screaming about no immunity when they're immunologists, right? A lot of these people, if you actually look at where funding comes from, it comes from particular areas, um, generally pharmaceutical type areas and other organizations have hugely funded Interestingly, some of the major players in the network that has driven this hysteria. So it can be a coincidence or it can, in a sense, just be business. So you don't need a conspiracy theory if it's just kind of business and long term business plans. You know, not stupid people, the smartest people in the room over many years funding visions that will be advantageous. Um, and maybe that's part of the spark that helped this thing explode. It didn't cause it. Stupidity mostly caused it. I have no doubt. But a really good long-term funding model to be ready when a crisis arises and help fuel the fire, it could do a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting way of putting it. What, what about what about the universities? I mean, you know, we were talking just now about the, the balkanization problem that the guys, you know, they know about the different, the EPIs might know about the differential equations in an SIR model or something, but apparently nothing about immunology or maybe not enough about viruses or something like that. They're very narrowly oriented in their, in their academic departments and so on. So there's that problem of just not having enough general knowledge knowledge of how their field integrates in the real world. You know, that, that looks like a problem. Um, at universities, they also have the safety culture thing, as I understand, that's been a growing problem. You know, what do they call them? Uh, safe spaces and things like this that we need. 
there's an idea that you shouldn't be, you know, challenged by ideas, offended by ideas or something like that. You know, that uh, it's hostile to criticize our hypothesis, you know? Um, so th there's that, there seem to be a lot of currents pointing at the current status of university culture. Yeah, that's a major part of it too. There's lots of strands to this, but I'd agree that's a major part of it. Our whole culture in the last decade, you know, has moved towards a place of hysterical thinking and a lack of what I would have seen as what makes us human. Good, robust conversation and argument, discussion, challenging, not to the point of wars, but, you know, challenging in a good way. That's a vibrant society. And what we've had is a sanitized society developing, which ironically, that will be the kind of society that will explode easily when something comes along that's a threat. So that, I'd say that's a huge thread, Nick, of this, along with maybe what I mentioned and along with many others. The world has been heading to be set up for this kind of mess. That's my perception. It's kind of the South African context, the, the motivation um, has very much been about power. So disaster management acts and emergency acts in, the, in, in various constitutions are there for a very good reason. But what they do is they give, um, they give governments enormous power. And here, our government has been, has, has just, it's been amazing because the oversight has vanished. So that's where we, and, and I'm, I'm not sure, I can't speak for other countries, but I think that's a, that's a significant motivation here. And we've seen some really, really ridiculous things. Um, more than 200,000 South Africans were arrested over lockdown for, for things like walking on the beach, surfing, um, because they, they went against the lockdown regulations. So now, and at the same time, we let out almost 20,000 uh, prisoners because we didn't want them to catch it. So there was some logic there. Um, we, we, still, we still have a more than 100-day ban on smoking, but I'm not a smoker. It doesn't affect me, but it's cost our fiscus almost 4 billion rand in tax revenue. Nine out of 10 smokers are still smoking because the black market has exploded. I can, I, can, I can buy a million rands worth of cigarettes today if I wanted to, because I know exactly where to go. It's not particularly hard. Um, and then our, one of the top uh, government officials will look you in the eye and say, well, the fact that the, the black market is booming is great news because it means the economic impact is not as bad as people are predicting. I mean, that, that's the logic we're dealing with. And you've got to say there, 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 there surely has to be some kind of conspiracy here because a everyone is still smoking more dangerous and unhealthy cigarettes at the same time you're bankrupting a, a lucrative part of your revenue and criminals are making a fortune uh, ooh, i don't know is there a missing piece of this puzzle or is that the whole puzzle um there's just some insane stuff going on here um and uh, it's power it, it it's and, and i think i i the question i have because a lot of the we, we take a cue from from american media i think i'm not sure how much it happens in ireland but in south africa we do, we, they, they set the tone of, of things like that. And I wonder how this whole thing would have played out had it not been an election year. Now, I'm not, I'm not partisan. I couldn't really care less what happens there politics-wise. But this election has had some kind of role in how this whole thing has been framed and pushed and, um, and sold to, to the general population. And then the rest of the world will catch, um, catch the wave on the end of that. 
I I think yeah that that is a huge factor again I don't get into politics uh, at all it's a rule I have but it is a huge factor and it's played out every day and you can see the different camps uh, from months ago how they were aligning and I think it's completely clouding everyone's judgment uh, ideology is far more p powerful than logic for most people it's even more powerful than a bribe so if you take say for instance the vegan movement they would have spent decades actually amazing amount of work to push the message about veganism because they're ideologically powerfully driven and they worked way harder than any doctor who was corruptly be given payments by pharma or something so the ideology in america the politics is so divisive they're such powerful drivers i have no doubt they can they can overturn all logic in the conscious of the person because it's their leading crucial thing they'll even They'll even push out of their mind, well, maybe this is wrong and damaging and maybe even people will get hurt. I think they'll push that aside and say, well, let's just get this thing done first, the political thing, because it's so important. And then we can clean up the mess later. So I'd agree. And every country has different underlying essential intents. You know, someone quoted in some countries, it'll be to get the yellow jackets off the streets. In some countries, it'll be about elections. In some countries, it'll be about a failing economy that will allow a reset now and we can blame the little piece of RNA on the economic problems that we caused over the last six years. So there's myriad reasons to do with power and control where people will love the virus. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. It's an opportunity. The World Economic Forum has gone publicly on their website. I was amazed at this. I thought it was a bit of a conspiracy theory. The World Economic Forum, this think tank that wants to do a reset and look at all the environmental stuff and get us to eat plant-based foods and maybe track us and trace us more and get more control, right? Those guys have come out and said that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They use those words and they have said how this can be used to help the Great Reset. And they've done it publicly on their website. It's not a leaked document. So huge motivations, myriad different angles around the world, vast amounts of different people seeing this as sadly an opportunity and they're all crowing about the people suffering but most of the real actors they're not too worried about that stuff right they're the real guys they're not worried about that's someone else's problem they're interested in the opportunity observed a similar sort of story here in our, our corporate landscape has been absolutely supine through this story they haven't raised their heads nobody said a thing and one or two brave businessmen, guys who, you know, independently wealthy guys who don't have to answer to anybody. They come out and give it a bit of a wind, then run away again. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, for the most part, it's been absolute radio silence. Um, and I mean, we've been saying, the phrase we've been using is that Davos man is one step away from a Marxist, you know. Um, because that's what it looks like. You know, these guys who do jump on their planes and disappear off to Davos and so on, they, you, can't, you, can't, you can't talk to them about this stuff. They're not, they're, they don't have an opinion. You know, they're not going to rock the boat on any of this. Well, you know, it's, um, it, it has been very depressing for me many mornings waking up. But when I get up then, I say, okay, someone's got to bring logic and science back to the world, however small the reach is. Some, everyone's got to do their bit. And if most people are not doing their bit, and as you said there, Nick, they're kind of keeping their mouths shut, it's all the more important than 
the minority who know what the hell is going on do try and do their bit. But we might circle back now as we close, because I'm conscious of your time and the limit. Um, the evidence on lockdown, which was one of our last topics we were going to kind of finish up with, and like, what's the best evidence around lockdown we could summarize uh, at the moment that we've got? We watched your exercise of asking, inviting people to fill the two-column chart uh, with... <laughs> pro-lockdown stories and anti-lockdown stories. And we did exactly the same. We asked people to you know, provide evidence. And, and eventually I had to say, you know, can you please uh, stop talking about Sweden versus Finland? Because we, we understand the pairwise comparison, okay? But the problem is there are 20 others that go in the other direction, number one. And the other thing is we know that there's more than one factor at play in terms of inter-country differences. We know that age is important, that comorbidity is important. You put up an interesting chart yesterday about the strength of last year's flu season, you know, as being a determinant factor. And we had picked up on that one as being pretty explanatory in the Nordic region. You know, that, that did look like a serious thing because each country had, you know, the exact opposite response to last year's flu season um, in terms of its COVID response, you know. So we know that there's a multiplicity of stories we're asking for the statistical evidence that lockdown works, not some um, calamity, that counterfactual calamity, you know, that would have been, you know. Um, and we have had nothing, nothing at all. You know, they're, they're, they're just, just the continuous refrain of, oh, but Sweden, Finland. And funny enough, never Sweden. Yeah, anecdotes. England, you know, <laughs> always just Sweden, Finland, as if two numbers justify this entire story. So it has been absolute absence. I saw one attempt online, a guy trying to go after Michael Levitt, and he was going after the front end of the curve, you know, that the, the second derivative straight line story wasn't correct at the front part of the curve. But it's such an easily gainsaid argument because, you know, then, so what you're saying is at release of lockdown, everything's going to rise again, and we don't see that, you know? especially even in these cases where like Malawi, where you know, the constitutional court overturns it, you know, and the other country you mentioned, I uh, can't remember, you said another one. Um, Slovenia, but, I think, Slovenia. or Czech Republic. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, even in those places, there just isn't an argument, you know, and yet if, if I go, if I talk even to very educated people who are sort of in the middle on this issue, and who maybe they're against lockdown, um, and I tell them, look, you know, we've done this analysis and there's no correlation, nothing. There's no evidence for it. The answer is always the same. They say, no, 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 but it was probably good that we locked down in the beginning to buy time for the hospital services. So you, you've shown them the data. You've shown them analysis. They're not disagreeing with any of it. They go, wow, Nick, that's very interesting. You know, and they're getting into it and they're looking at it. And you say, and then, oh, but it's just as well we locked down just to buy some time. You know, I've, I've just shown them the proof that there isn't time bought, you know. And yeah, it it's amazing. And, you know, I only I knew one a while back, but I only got an analysis done two days ago and I put out a short video on Twitter about it on the Sweden versus Nordic. I made all the arguments you mentioned that it's not a compare you can depend on. It's been hackneyed, overused to the point of cliche, and it's fundamentally not scientific to cherry pick your compares. But the other day, I got a bit of an analysis which resonated with something I'd seen before. And I'll share it on the screen as I say this. Uh, a guy has looked, and this is the most powerful at all. Basically, when you take measures, let's say on uh, 15th of March, then the death curve 
will only start responding to those measures on, say, the 8th of April. So there's a few weeks lag. So if people can think there's a lag. So today I lock everyone down. The curve is going to continue for three weeks. But any infections I stop from today will not result in deaths in around three weeks' time. And that's where the curve will shift. Now, all over the world, we've seen the lockdown went in and there was no shift in the curve three weeks later. That's one thing. But Sweden is fascinating because when Sweden took their non-lockdown measures, you know, around the end of March, uh, Norway, Finland and uh, Denmark took their hard lockdown measures around the end of March. Well... In the next three weeks where those measures could have done nothing, Sweden began a big rise in death rates and the other countries saw nothing. So Sweden was fundamentally, utterly different than Finland, Norway and Denmark in terms of death impacts before the measures could ever change that. So they, they were different before a lockdown could have made them different. And in fact, a lot of their curve of deaths is before the lockdown could occur. The other countries were baked in or destined to have relatively low excess mortality regardless. And Sweden was baked in or destined to have a hump in mortality. And as you say, Nick, probably directly relating to its sub uh, mortality issue in 2019 and early 2020 flu season in fact their negative deaths below expected roughly matched the positive we got when this virus came along so this is you put this together but you're absolutely right nick if you put this together even to an engineer who's pro lockdown or a technical person and show it to them you can just sense a bristling and then they don't want to talk anymore that's right and I wonder how much for ordinary people is this, to be quite honest, disgraceful sheep-like behavior. Is it based on professionals and people in jobs, secure jobs and, you know, pensions, employment? Are they threatened by the idea that all of our experts and governments were completely wrong and now won't admit it? Is that too threatening and too concerning to face? Is fear got the best of them, that they don't even want to face that? Is there something like that going on in the psychology? It's very interesting. I, I, I tried to reverse the movie a little bit. I, instead of saying, okay, what's going wrong? I said, okay, well, if, if I had to just do, what, what are the things that I would do if I were, you know, the, the benevolent dictator and I wanted to fix the planet, okay? And let me, let me spell out those things and try and imagine how that would feel for the fearful sheep, Okay. And so I thought, okay, what's the first one? The first one you do is you decentralize because the centralization problem lo looms huge in this story. The organization that ends in an O, every government you look at, uh, you know, you, you don't want decisions being made en masse for everybody. It does one of the worst things that you can do in the world, as David Deutsch points out, points out which is it destroys the means for error correction. Okay. And nothing evolves without error correction. So nothing improves. You cannot have growth. You cannot have improvement, progress. You can't be a progressive if you don't have error correction. Okay. So I would go decentralized, very localized. Okay. Very community based. I would do the opposite of the way the world is organized right now. Number one. What else would I do? I would debalkanize the hell out of education. I would 
make sure that there was much more general approach to education, that it was much less specialized, that the academic departments and studies were forced to uh, integrate and engage and that you were forced to study across, you know, I don't like coercion in general, but uh, you, something needs to be moved, right? You're going to have to change something. And this can't, we can't all just wait for, <laughs> for these things to fix. Action is required. Um, I would do those two things first and wait and see, because I think that might just be enough. If you did, if you did those two things, you would rejuvenate the world in a big way and take away a lot of this nonsense as well. I think this, this stuff only grows in the shadow of, um, of institutions that can force people to digest what is basically down to myth, you know, religion. Um, it's and, it's you know, factual basis. Ivory tower organizations and supercharged if they have un underlying financial or economic conflicts of interests or even just extending their own power conflicts of interests with centralized power are a disaster. And I mean, if people want to, even American listeners, you know, may take exception to some discussions. But if you want to think of a centralized system, right, the big one and how it showed exactly what you're saying, Nick, is correct. Well, the Soviet Union, right? It destroyed itself and could not could not progress and develop. There was enormous bad science beyond belief, obviously, a propaganda beyond belief, and people suffering beyond belief. But that's a perfect example of a centralized system. It's the opposite of capitalism. So amazingly, the capitalist world in the last couple of months has begun to show all the signs between propaganda and centralization and dogma and dictum and not adapting to new data and changing, it's showing perfect kind of behaviors of the Soviet system in the mid-20th mid century. And they don't even see it. Like Americans are defending the behavior. I don't know if they, don't, if they realize they're facing, effectively defending and supporting structures that they would supposedly hate more than anything else in the world. We need to put Gulag Archipelago on the recommended reading list. <laughs> That's the book. For sure. Yeah, and a lot of other works that, that, that give us lessons from history. But uh, one last point on the, you talked about integration, and I love that. Uh, the thing is, we've got the specialists. They've got a narrow view. In my world before, we had the specialists. They were brilliant, but they had a narrow view, and they would miss the whole point in a multi-factor complex system. Then we had integrators, system integrators, who were engineers who had good knowledge in the specialties, but also broader knowledge. And then my role and some others would be the integrator of the integrators. So we would manage mainly the integrators to take an even higher level view. Uh, I'd like to think like your benevolent dictator there, Nick. <laughs> But you need that pyramidal structure and integration is crucial and we've lost it everywhere. On Professor Levitt's then data and maybe finishing off with the data, a little chat on his models and his data curves. He was correct since February and tried to tell Imperial College in Ferguson. He's proven correct to this very day as the data has all flowed out over months in many countries. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that to close. The guy who was correct. The guy who was right, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I thought I was living in a dream uh, because the early discussion that we had uh, as, a, as a team and, and you know, the, the, the other members who aren't here, uh, because this predated uh, Peter and I meeting each other, was 
all around the Diamond Princess data because that was where the whole, you know, it was just amazing luck that you got this boat, the Petri dish experiment. And we were obsessing over that story and you know, looking at it and what does it mean and concluding, oh, okay, it's, it's not going to be a big deal, you know, missing the whole social consequence story at that stage, of course. But when, when we woke up one morning to find that there was a Nobel laureate talking about the Diamond Princess data and reaching uh, the conclusions and then coming along with this army of curves, the Gompertz models, um, it, was, it was like a dream come true. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I, I take my hat off to that man. Really, I do. What he, he, what, everything he's saying and the way he's going about it, that ability to correct errors as soon as he realizes he's made them, and then just to keep talking about the facts. Um, it, it's wonderful. And, and we've, we've been heavily inspired by his work. So our first attempt to look at um, spatial differences in mortality rates we fitted Gompertz curves and it was amazing. We just went, we, you know, we automated the whole process, fitted them to um, all the countries of the world, all the counties in the UK, every single county. Okay. And the fits are gorgeous. You know, <laughs> that's just, it's just beautiful. Um, I mean, we should, we should just remind me at the end, I must come back to the Gompertz discussion. But so, so we, we applied his method and then it gives you this, this, this tool because you can perform a regression against the Gompertz parameters to see what drives them in terms of, uh, inter-country experience. And we're putting out our first, uh, uh, we put out our first paper on this. It came up with very little. We couldn't find much. It's, it's very hard to find determinants, both within a country and internationally, of, of experience. So, so for the UK, we tried everything, density, age, um, transport density. Uh, yeah, there were all sorts of things that just came up not really explaining much at all, you know. So you've got this observation that within any country there's places that have like terrible experience and then there are places that are barely affected i think there are boroughs in new york that have zero deaths you know <laughs> it's uh it's crazy uh, this crazy variation per, really pareto distribution within country and parade not far from pareto for internationally you know so it's it's this staggeringly difficult puzzle and and it, if, pe you know, if only people were thinking about these things and applying some energy to these problems, I think you'd actually begin to get answers to how the disease process works. So, I mean, the things we found so far um, are age, comorbidity, a mild support for the hygiene thesis, which we didn't really touch on when we were talking immunology, but it's consistent with everything you were saying about T cells and so on and uh, Professor Bedder's uh, advice. Um, but, uh, you know, other than that, obesity, very significant. That's a heck of a big driver. It's huge. As a statistic by itself, 27, 30% of the total variance is explained by obesity prevalence. It's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah the other thing that's relevant, but it's, it's a little bit of a confounded factor, is the issue of um, healthcare expenditure. Um, and the way to understand, and what we mean by that is interesting. The more you spend on healthcare, right? the worse your mortality is. And it's interesting because we're trying to tease out from this. Now, that could be that it's because you've got old people. No, we've already controlled for age in that analysis. Okay. So something's going on. The amount of money being spent in late life healthcare, keeping people alive so that they're in a condition that exposes them you know, to death by flu because they're sort of medical sciences keeping them right there you know, until the virus comes along. So that seems to be a kind of a, a relevant uh, factor. And then there are a couple of others that we, we, we didn't even include in the paper, but we're mentioning and discussing, and I'm going to mention them here with a very big caveat. We do not think that they're drivers. We want to understand. 
but those are blood, rhesus factor, enormous predictive power, the prevalence of rhesus factor in populations. Okay. ABO group. Now that's been documented uh, as, you know, with on in, in country regional studies that comes up as relevant. And we, we, it's either the presence of B antigens or the absence of A antibodies. One of the two is, seems to be the relevant thing. We can't tell which because they're so closely related as statistical concepts. But we left them out of our paper because there's no profound explanatory reason for that. Um, we'd love to talk to people who, who might have an idea about what that could be driving that because it's, it's just, you know, if it was an anomaly, if it was just something geographic creeping in there, it would be one thing. It's not. These are very strong effects. And they're, they're not effects that disappear from the model when you introduce, you know, age, comorbidity, and the standard things that people would expect to see in this disease. So, you know, th that's, the, that's the data that in, in, on an international level, I, I think we're going to discover a lot because we've got to, we've got as far as explaining about half of the variance. Um, we've got as far as explaining about half of the variance in intercountry experience. Um, of course, one of the big problems is the data collection is all variable across countries. So, you know, the, in, in your classic pairwise comparison of, of Sweden versus Finland, you had the problem that it was only quite late in the epidemic that Finland started reporting nursing home deaths. And given that the majority of deaths are in nursing home, that makes a big difference. Okay. Um, Sweden was doing the opposite. They, were not, they weren't just reporting um, deaths from COVID in nursing homes. They were reporting people who died of strokes and heart attacks and dementia who happened to have had COVID at some stage in the last 30 days, which would overstate the deaths by a huge number. Because remember in those age groups, groups, infected people die with a probability of like 20%. So you will overcount by four or five in that age group among the deaths, you know, maybe. Uh, sorry, I might have done that maths wrong, but it's a significant overcounting problem that they have in Sweden, okay? So you know that a lot of the variance is gonna be because of that. And then the chicanery that some countries get up to. It's very interesting. When, when a gompets curve doesn't fit, you've got to look. <laughs> There's usually a story going on. Um, funnily enough, the Chinese gompets fit is one of the weakest. Uh, I, I know it is where Michael Levitt's uh, uh, initial intuitions started being built, but we're not seeing that one as a particularly good fit. There's something wrong there. But um, yeah, so that's, that's uh, where where our data analysis is taking us, the new paper that's out, we'd love to get some input from, you know, people who actually have academic departments and, and funding. We don't have either of those, but no, maybe we don't want the input after the discussion today. Um, yeah. And then there's the, the, the business of predicting the, predicting the curves in the countries, which, you know, we, we've nearly not been in the game of trying to make predictions. We've been trying to, to show that the predictions are wildly out of range of what's happened in the rest of the world. Cause we have the benefit of hindsight with a fairly late epidemic in South Africa, you know? So we're trying really just to say, come guys, it, you, you know, it's not 80,000, it's not 45,000 deaths for South Africa. Explain to us based on the following logic, why it should be more than 10,000, you know? And if it's more than 10,000, if it's not going to be more than 10,000, why are we still locked down? Because every year, you know, as I said, we've got a hundred thousand, uh, deaths from other communicable diseases. This is not registering on the Richter scale here, yet the poverty is mu en enormous. So we've been trying to sort of uh, stay out of the game of making predictions, but that's obviously very difficult because people turn around to you and say, well, what does your model say? You know, 
And so what we do is we give people the, the Gompertz curve that fits as soon as the curve is inflected, you can make a nice fit and boom, there's your prediction. Okay. But we only do that once you get to the prediction stage. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's it. Ivor. I mean, that's the summary of the data side. Uh, yeah, but for, fortunately Levitz and uh, his uh, co-conspirators have actually got quite good models out quite recently giving a prediction for every country. So um, yeah. I would actually just like to point them there. That's um, we can start doing that. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't do it at provincial level yet. Does he? No, no, no. It would, it would just be South Africa, Africa. Either. If you can ask him to do provinces in South Africa, that would save us a lot of work. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm in communication with him obviously. And, um, he's, his paper a couple of days ago was just published on med or IX. So is that, yeah, that's got some detail. And, and just to your, your, your factors there. Yeah. I love the one about the medical care expenses and yes, keeping older infirm people alive longer. And we've seen the lags. In the countries with big peaks of death, they had big lags in the last couple of years. So that all makes sense. The obesity, leptin resistance, had a discussion with Dr. Rosedale back in April. Leptin resistance is, and insulin resistance is a huge part of this immune uh, inflexibility that's causing most of the impacts. And, and then the other ones as well, they, they all make sense. And the variation between areas that never correlates with lockdown and so on and so forth. So I'd say, yeah, we'll, we'll probably have to tail it off at that. And um, there was one question someone asked me, uh, if you were to look at one data set in conclusion or just one graph for a lay person, what is the easiest thing to just look at to digest and to see what has actually happened here? The scatter plot that yeah. shows the severity of lockdown and impacts of lockdown. It's just like someone took a paintbrush and went, Pfft because it's just spots everywhere. There's no pattern. I'll display that on the screen as we talk. I've seen it, yeah, your analysis. There's so many more as well, but how many how many swallows do you need to to have <laughs> for the summer? So, excellent. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll circle back again in a couple of weeks and hopefully it'll be less depressing this anti-science environment we're living through and hopefully the world can somehow come to its senses and uh, not be just taken over by fear and illogical unscientific thinking i mean what more can i say couldn't endorse that more <laughs> that sounds like a bit of a it just more two more weeks just two more weeks two more weeks, <laughs> <laughs> two more weeks till the world's not insane we're just like the other side two more weeks there's going to be loads of impact yeah but anyway listen thanks a lot guys and we will indeed circle back great stuff nick uh peter great stuff no, thank you Ivor. Thanks a lot. Great, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen. And go to extratimemovie.com to see our fascinating new documentary on stopping and reversing heart disease.